Well, good morning, church, and happy Sunday. It is good to gather again for worship this morning, whether you're here with us in-house or whether you are joining us online. And actually, special welcome back to our online community. Our internet was down last weekend, and so welcome back, online people. Sorry we missed you last week. Whatever this past week has been for you, whether it's been busy or boring, whether it's been hard or easy, whether it's been rewarding or draining, faith-filled or despairing, we gather to remember that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So we gather to worship God this morning. Would you please stand to hear our call to worship? Comes to us from Psalm 134, where the invitation is this, come. Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who gather this morning in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hearts to the Holy One and bless the Lord. May the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. Let's sing together for God so loved.
may be seated. Even as we sing of a God who can turn bones into armies and graves into gardens, even as we confess with that with our lips, sometimes our lives don't perfectly reflect that. And sometimes we don't live the way that God calls us to live. Mindful of that, we'll offer a prayer of confession together this morning. But uh, some of the language from our prayer of confession this morning comes to us from uh, our, our, one of our standards, the Heidelberg uh, Catechism, question and answer 126 and 127. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you make a way when there seems to be none. You at one time granted Abraham and Sarah a child, even at a mature age. You parted the sea for the Israelites so that they might escape Egypt. You rescued Jonah even when he was lost at sea. And certainly, most clearly, you redeemed humanity from death and darkness by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, light of the world, for us and for our salvation. You make a way when there seems to be none. So often, though, we forget all that you have done in history and even in our own lives. And so we recklessly even go our own path. We forge our own trail. We chart our own course as the masters of our own domain. Forgive us, Lord, for failing to remember all that you've done to sustain and guide our very lives. Forgive us for taking lightly the grace that you have shown to each one of us. Oh God, it is because of Christ's blood that poor sinners that we are, we are freed from the sin we live with and the evil that clings to this world. Forgive us just as we are, fully determined, stubborn, and bullheaded even, so that, as evidence of your grace, we might extend forgiveness to our neighbors. By ourselves, we are too weak to hold on even for a moment. We are in need of the gift of your grace that comes from your life given and your blood shed for us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in our spiritual struggles but may firmly resist all that tempts us to live independently from you until we finally complete the race that you've called us into. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and sing of God's forgiveness that we know in Jesus.
It is because of the forgiveness that we have received from Jesus Christ that we have peace with God and that we can have peace with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. Please share a sign of Christ's peace as you feel comfortable. Well, good morning, church and friends and guests. The Lord be with you. My name is Ross Dealman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where together it is our mission to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. We're eager to live that mission out with you, not only when we're gathered in this place, but also when we scatter into our various life worlds. We have connection cards available that if you are new around here and would like to make yourself known or if there's something that you'd like uh, to share with us, we'd be happy to hear it. Those cards are available at our welcome desk uh, just outside the sanctuary or also there's digital versions uh, available online. We'd love to hear from you. This has been a busy and exciting and good week. Uh, So I bring greetings from Geneva. This past week was a week where there was a good handful of fellowship people. This is not everybody. It's hard to get everybody together like herding cats for one particular photo. But this past week, this is some of the fellowship people that were out there at Geneva. And it was a great week. We're rejoicing and thanking God for our partnership out there and the things that God has done in and among us. It reminds me, a week like that, uh, out immersed in the grandeur of God's creation, in Christian community, uh, doing songs and skits is what they call them, and all kinds of other wonderful things. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's true of our thoughts, of our words, of our deeds, and even of our wallets, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And with gratitude at Fellowship Church, we seek to pool our resources and we give our tithes and our offerings to join God in ministry and in mission around here. And if you'd like to do that, you can do so with one of the giving bowls in the back of the sanctuary, or you can do so with a QR code online. And maybe if you've never done that before, uh, you could do it for the first time uh, this week and place your heart and your treasures in the very same place and find the great, great joy of doing so. Uh, This week has been a week in which we've shared videos across the pond. And by the pond, I mean Lake Makatawa to our sister congregation over at Christ Memorial. We've sent a video their way and they've sent one our way as we're considering together this journey of Bible study called Immerse. And we've sent greetings and even encouragement to one another. So you're going to hear from Eric Scrotenbor, which is on the side over here. Uh, and you may recognize his face because he also was the one uh, who put together the Wandering Wiseman books that we did at Advent recently. And now he's over at Christ Memorial as one of the pastors. He's sending greetings our way. Take a look. Good morning, Fellowship family. My name is Eric Scrotenbor, and I'm the pastor of Discipleship and Mission at Christ Memorial Church on the south side of town. And this morning, 
we just wanted to take a moment to encourage you and to send you our greetings because just like you, we're preparing our hearts for the Immerse Reading Bible experience and reading through the New Testament. At a Jewish worship service, at the end of a Jewish worship service, the congregation would say together these words, Hezak, Hezak, Venit, Hezak. Be strong, be strong, and together we will strengthen one another. Be strong. Listen to these words from Joshua 1. God says to Joshua, be strong and be courageous. This book of the law shall not depart. My word shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Friends at Fellowship, know that as you embark on this journey of reading the New Testament together in community, that we are with you and we are excited for you and we will be praying for you as you take God's words and as you chew on them and as you ingest them and as you live them out. Friends, we're so excited to see what God is gonna do in your church family, in your neighborhoods, and in our city. So we wanna leave you with these words. Hezak, Hezak, Venit, Hezak. Fellowship family, be strong, be strong, and together we will strengthen one another as we open God's words and live them out in our community. Thanks to Eric and Christ Memorial Friends for sending that video over. And if you'd like to sign up, you could do so. There's a QR code in the bulletin uh, even today uh, that you could sign up for that. As we await the beginning of that particular journey, I remind you that we have our New Testament postcards available every Sunday, a new one freshly printed. Uh, these are part of our journey through the New Testament epistles this summer. And so you can collect all of them before the summer is through. What a great joy. Even better than baseball cards, right? Uh, today, also, uh, if you're a high school student, uh, going to the beach and to the boats, right? So if you're not already clued in on that, talk to these guys or these guys or uh, just ask around. We'll point you in the right direction. For now, we're going to continue in worship through song and special thanks to the band that's been leading us and uh, Jess Nix is off for a week of vacation. So thank you, friends. Good morning, Fellowship Church. Um, this next song may or may not be familiar to you, so um, I invite you to, to remain seated um, and feel free to listen, or if it, you know, you are more than welcome to join us in singing. Struggle, 
you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful to be redeemed. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together with brothers and sisters to, uh, to worship you, to sing to you, to pray to you, to confess to you, to extend 
um, the grace that you and the peace that you have lavished upon us to one another um, and to study the scriptures this morning. As we turn toward those scriptures, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would open our ears that we might hear, and that you would open our hearts that we might love. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. Uh, my name is Tiara. If I've not yet met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, and we are continuing on in a series that we've been calling Letters from Home. Uh, in this series, we've been exploring the New Testament letters, uh, and this morning, uh, we are going to hop into the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is a bit of a mysterious letter because we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews uh, or the letter of Hebrews. We also don't know who in particular it was sent to. Uh, we don't know the particular community that it was sent to. Uh, but what we do know based on the content of the letter is that it was written to a group of Jewish people, uh, Jewish people who confessed, uh, who had come to place their trust, their faith, in the, uh, in the crucified and resurrected Jewish Messiah as their Lord and Savior. And the writer of Hebrews assumes that this very Jewish group of people know their Torah. Uh, it's not a competition, but if it were, Hebrews would come in second with 40 Old Testament references, uh, 40 Old Testament references throughout. Uh, now, we also uh, don't know, because we don't know the precise author and the precise uh, particular community, it's hard to determine the date. So we've got a little bit more of a range with Hebrews being placed somewhere between 40 and 70 AD. Now this is a time of growing persecution for God's people, but not quite, not quite to the pitch of 70 AD when the second temple was destroyed, but still there's some pressure. Uh, there's pressure from the Romans who, uh, who want to squash anything that resembles a rebellion. And to be sure, following after a crucified peasant who was supposedly leading a rebellion certainly qualifies. But then there's also pressure from their fellow Jews who promise protection and shielding um, under the guise of Judaism being a, state, a sanctioned, recognized religious uh, group, promising protection, but only if you kind of give up this whole Jesus nonsense under the right pressure, Judaism starts to look a little bit like easier pastures, safer pastures, more comfortable, more mainstream, more popular pastures. And so hearing about these pressures, the writer of Hebrews does two key things throughout the text. First, he holds up the most striking figures and features of Judaism and explains, articulates all of them in light of Christ. But then secondly, the writer of Hebrews offers several very, very stern warnings throughout the text. Now, these warnings are not intended to scare the people, uh, nor are they intended to scare us as readers hundreds of years later. The writer is actually pleading with, the group of, uh, with this particular group of people because deep down, the writer of Hebrews is concerned that God's people, if they waver, if they wander, if they cave to the pressure, that they're going to miss out. You might say that the writer of Hebrews has FOMO, which is millennial speak for fear of missing out. And he wants his readers to have a healthy sense of FOMO too. And so he tells them a few stories about people who have missed out. But embedded within all these Old Testament references and stories within Hebrews, I think is a question for us to consider this morning. Who is the Christ when we're on the cusp of missing out? And even more, 
Who is the Christ when the fear of missing out gives way to the reality of missing out? When we don't make the team, when we don't get into the school, when we don't get the job, when we don't get the house, who is Christ when the thing that we want is so close that we can see it, but it eludes us nonetheless? I think that's the question for us this morning that the writer of Hebrews wants us to consider. And so hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter one, picking up in verse one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. And after making purification for sins, this son sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited and is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if Hebrews is known for its 40-ish references to the Hebrew scriptures, the content of those references is even more striking. Within the first few verses, the writer of Hebrews tells us the center, what is the core or the center of the letter of Hebrews is all about, which is Christ. Christ is the son by whom God has spoken in these last days. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Christ is the one who, after making purification for our sins, sits at the right hand of God. And certainly then, the writer says, he is also superior to the angels. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. This has been waking you up at 2 a.m. every night for weeks. Who's superior, Christ or angels? Christ or angels? Angels or Christ? Okay, maybe not waking you up at 2 a.m., but note the rhetorical device used here because it's the same one that tracks throughout the whole letter. Jesus is not just compared to angels, but to Moses, to the high priest, to to goats and bulls, and, and several other figures and features of the old covenant between God and God's people. But why this particular comparison between angels and Jesus, and what on earth does it have to do with anything? Well, by the first century, God's people had come to believe that Moses had received on Mount Sinai the law from the angels themselves sent as messengers to deliver the law to God's people. This is based on Deuteronomy 33 and 2. The angels or the hosts, uh, the holy ones, thousands, ten thousands of holy ones coming um, up on the mount. Uh, Eugene Peterson's message says it's a bit more forthrightly, uh, coming with 10,000 holy angels. Now, Plato's Republic is a great book. Gone with the Wind is a great book. Scarlet Letter, Moby Dick, Invisible Man, Their Eyes Are Watching God. So many of the great books that maybe you read in high school or college. Some of you are getting flashbacks of not so great moments of not having read those books. But (laughs) still, these are all really, really great books. But none of them, none of them claim to have been given to us by angels. The conclusion is pretty intuitive. If God sent his angels to deliver the law, then not only is it a defining feature of our faith, but the message therein is one that we should revere and obey and carefully attend to. But it's here that the writer of Hebrews says, if the faces of angels are radiant because they get to see the face of God, Christ is the very radiance of God. And if the mission of the angels 
is revered because they serve those who are to inherit salvation. Christ is the founder and the perfecter of our salvation. You see, the mission and the message of the angels, the writer of Hebrews says, pales in comparison to the mission and the message of Christ. And it's here that the writer of Hebrews picks up a familiar text, uh, a text that we covered a couple of weeks ago, Psalm chapter 8. You remember it read like this. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. Only in Hebrews 2, the writer makes a slight adjustment. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Don't miss the brilliance of what's happening here because he wants you, the writer wants you to recall the story. Remember, it was humans who were made a little lower than the angels and yet the entirety of creation entrusted under our feet. The entirety of creation entrusted not to angels, but to human persons. Human persons crowned with glory and honor so that they could rule creation as mediators of God's blessing in the world. And we sort of, kind of, blew it royally cosmically blew it. But that's not the end of the story because Christ, the very radiance of God, the very image of God, this Christ being eternally superior to the angels is for a little while made lower than them. Why? So that he could assume our flesh and blood, the writer says, and become the person that become the human person that you and I were always meant to be who we failed to be, who we didn't live up to. Christ becomes human so that he can complete the story of humanity in creation. Now, the writer of Hebrews sees the point that the law given to Moses by the angels had some utility. We read about this in Deuteronomy. For instance, Deuteronomy 6, where the law is revered as a means for understanding how the generations, how they and the generations to come were to love God with all of their heart, mind, and soul. In Deuteronomy 5, it's the means of understanding how to live well in the land that the Lord was bringing them into. In Deuteronomy 4, we hear that it's their wisdom before the nations, their attentiveness to the laws, their wisdom before the nations. And Isaiah picks up on this theme and says, not only is it your wisdom before the nations, but they will come to inquire of your God through your faithfulness to the law. You see what's happening The Hebrew scriptures tell the story of the law reorienting or showing God's people their responsibility as mediators of God's blessing and creation. But the writer of Hebrews says that if the message given by angels to Moses was reliable in showing us that responsibility, so much so that it warrants reverence and obedience and careful attentiveness, then the writer concludes, shouldn't we pay even closer attention to the message given by a far better, a far superior messenger, Jesus Christ. By the messenger who is not just a messenger of God, but is the very message or word of God made flesh so that he could complete our mission that was given not to the angels, but to you and to me. 
So that's the first comparison. The second great comparison that the writer of Hebrews makes in this letter is between Jesus and Moses. You remember the story of Moses. The story of Moses was, has been chronicled in movies. Uh, recently, I discovered in tons of artwork um, from like 16th and 17th and 18th century, tons of artwork uh, displaying the life of Moses on canvas. Uh, I'm gonna tell Moses' story in three acts very succinctly because it's such a familiar story. Uh, but Moses in the first act, uh, Moses is drawn out. Uh, that's literally what its name means, drawn out of the river. He's placed there because the Pharaoh um, has decided to enact a vicious scheme to uh, murder all the baby boys of Israel. And so the midwives and his mother and his sister all work together to preserve his life. They place him in a basket and send him up the river. And he is discovered by the daughter of the Pharaoh. The son of a Hebrew slave becomes the son of Pharaoh. Until one day, Moses spots an Egyptian overseer attacking one of the Hebrew slaves and something like righteous anger leapt into his chest and he kills the Egyptian overseer. Eventually, word gets out about Moses' deed and he has to flee to the desert. And in the desert, he eventually marries and becomes a shepherd working for the father of the woman that he marries, seemingly never to be heard from again. In the second act of Moses' life, Moses is out tending his flock and God calls to Moses from a burning bush. And there he commissions Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh. And Moses' reaction is sort of odd because the guy who didn't think twice about killing an Egyptian overseer who was attacking a Hebrew slave is somehow lost his courage, lost his chuspah, lost his anger, lost that righteous anger that drove him to the rescue before so much so that he haggles with God and God eventually agrees to send his brother Aaron with him as his mouthpiece to the Pharaoh. And it works. God shows up and it's so glorious that Moses and the people sing a song of trust and faith in Yahweh and his power. Moses begins the third act of his life on a high note, a serious high note. But no sooner, alas, than they sing the song of trust and faith in Yahweh, the people begin to grumble and complain. First, because the water in the desert is bitter. And then because there's nothing to eat and God gives them manna from heaven. And then because they get bored with the manna and then they get quail. And then there's the water thing again. The people grumble and they complain a lot. But Moses remains faithful. When the people refuse to come up the mountain of God out of fear, out of terror of the Lord, it is Moses who communes with God on their behalf. So much so that Moses is known as a friend of God who God communed with face to face. Like when the people eventually get to the threshold of the promised land and, and some of the spies come back with great tales of giant, well-trained soldiers who never skip leg day and fortified cities that are impenetrable and how their army, their own army, their puny little, tiny little army doesn't stand a chance against this great number of people. And the people lose their nerve. They weep all night, it says in Numbers 14. They lose their nerve and they refuse to go in. But faithful Moses falls to his face before God and he intercedes for them. He prays for them. And as a result, God promises to pardon their rebellion, but also that they wouldn't enter into the promised land. That whole first generation would not get a chance to enter. But here's where it gets even more interesting. Because the more the people grumble and complain, the angrier and the more resentful Moses grows. Like when the water thing happens, Again, 
a third time in Numbers 20. And once again, Moses is given instructions for how to bring about deliverance for the people. But Moses carelessly strikes the rock that God commands him to merely speak to twice. Now, there's a great deal of symbolism that I'm I'm not going to have. I'm just going to kind of leave aside for now. But for now, the central point is that Moses is told that he too will not set foot on the promised land. This is the moment that the writer of Hebrews recalls in Hebrews 3 through 4 as a warning to the people. The story of the whole generation who was rescued from slavery in Egypt missing out on the promised land. And it wasn't just because, it wasn't because God withheld something from them. I mean, that would almost be easier to bear. The people never quite learn, and because of this, they don't go into the promised land because they never quite learn to trust the God who shows up for them relentlessly, rescuing them, shows up for them over and over and over and over again. And while the writer of Hebrews takes great pains to praise Moses as the faithful servant of God, he says, Moses too doesn't get to go into the promised land because he never quite learns to steward that anger of his, anger that is sometimes a gift that he leverages to rescue his people, and is sometimes, like as in, when he's standing on the precipice of the promised land, a curse to him. The writer of Hebrews wants you to feel the regret dripping off the page. And it's not meant to scare us. It's not meant to terrorize us, but it is meant to make us uncomfortable. It's a warning. And there are several of them throughout the Hebrew text. And all of them say essentially the same thing. Don't miss out. Don't miss out on what God has gifted to you. Some of us can point to you if we're willing to look back over our lives, no matter how long those lives are, um, to moments when we ourselves have missed out. And maybe we missed out because life got in the way. Um, You had to give up on dreams or an opportunity because uh, maybe illness got in the way for you. Or maybe, maybe you needed to do something practical to put food on the table. Or maybe you had to forego using some of your gifts because a loved one needed full-time care or maybe more attention than you would have been left with at the end of the day after getting that promotion. You'll never know how the story would have turned out. And there's some regret there. But some of us can also point to moments in our lives when we missed out. And it wasn't because we were sacrificing ourselves for someone else. It was because we ourselves got in the way. God placed something in front of us and we got in the way. It's like the athlete who finally makes it to the college team or the pro team, but never quite gets around to putting in the work and eventually gets cut from the team. It's the moments when we don't just let other people down, but we break something, whether it's an opportunity or a friendship or a marriage or a relationship with a kid or a relationship with a person who reports to you. And it's almost easier when we can blame God, right? Or, or, when, or even easier when we can blame other people. It's so much harder to accept it and to live with it and to even think about it in hindsight when it's our own fear and our own sin and our own brokenness and our own unhealed wounds that stop us in our tracks. God shows Moses the promised land that he'll never set foot on. And I think sometimes God shows us the places, our minds drift back to these places that we will never set foot on. How does the story end 
Talk about waking you up at two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning, searching for resolutions to those unfinished stories, the unfinished stories of our lives. But here's where the writer of Hebrews directs our attention. Just as Joshua leads the people to the earthly promised land that Moses couldn't get to himself, so Jesus is the one who comes and leads us to a better eternal promised land. He does it, the writer of Hebrews tells us, by being a better high priest. Now, the role of the high priest was to present God to the people or represent God to the people and also represent the people to God. And the priest did this through sacrifices, which we read about in Leviticus. Now, I'm going to assume that you don't want me to read through and teach you through all of those sacrifices in the sacrificial system, not least of all because you're ready for lunch. But here are two things that are worth saying. First, the system sort of breaks down from the beginning because the priests themselves were sinful, broken human beings themselves. And so they have to make sacrifices for themselves, we learn in Hebrews chapter 5. Sacrifices for themselves before they can offer um, sacrifices for the people. But the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers that Jesus is the human whose blameless life requires no atonement for sin, he says in Hebrews 7. Jesus is the high priest who, unlike us, isn't hobbled, isn't hobbled by his own brokenness and unhealed wounds. Jesus is not just a better high priest because his own life is blameless. He's also a better high priest because he offers the better sacrifice. Now, we think of the sacrificial system, especially, you know, hundreds of years later as this archaic, maybe barbaric, maybe gross, certainly messy um, ritual. Uh, But these sacrifices were symbols that pointed to something. They pointed to true redemption and true restoration of humanity and creation. Because something was so cosmically broken in creation and in you and I that we still feel the alienation from God and one another in creation. And so these symbols, these sacrifices pointed to things like repentance, God's people turning actively away from sin and idolatry and injustice, or, or forgiveness, this wiping away of the debt caused by sin that weighs us down, or purity the cleansing of God's people from moral defilement and the deforming of our souls left by sin or inflicted by sin, but ultimately covenantal restoration, this covenantal relationship that we get to have with the God who loves us and pursues us and redeems us being restored through these symbols. Now the writer of Hebrews tells us that these sacrifices were like scaffolding for what was to come in Jesus Because the blood of goats and bulls couldn't actually turn our hearts away from sin. All they could do, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, is just simply remind us of our sin and our guilt and our shame. But if the blood of goats and bulls symbolically purified our hearts, how much more then does the blood of Jesus function to purify us, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9. For it is Christ's perfect sacrifice offered once and for all through which all of our sins are forgiven, through which we're sanctified when the Holy Spirit writes the law on our hearts and on our minds, and through which right relationship with God is restored and right relationship with one another. The old covenant merely pointed to this but fell short. It didn't have the power to do this, but the new covenant sealed by Christ's blood finishes the story. So let's return to our initial question. Who is Christ when humans fail? Who is Christ when even the faithful fail? Who is Christ when you and I fail? Who is Christ when we miss out? 
I think when we look at the stories highlighted in Hebrews, and particularly Hebrews 11, which includes some people who make sense, people like Abel and Enoch, and also some people who make no sense at all, like Samson, um, we see in those stories, incomplete stories, rose-tinted versions of faithfulness that even when we look back at the life of Moses in its entirety, we realize it's a little bit less of what actually took place. I think when we see our own life stories, we think of the incomplete stories and the things that are undone and the things that remain unfulfilled. But I think that's precisely what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Lifting up those stories, lifting up the Old Testament stories, lifting up the stories of the saints, and then retelling them in light of the work that Christ does to complete them. The writer of Hebrews trusts in something about Jesus and wants us to know that Christ is the perfecter of our faith, he says, He uses this word, uh, teleotes. Uh, Repeat after me, teleotes. You hear in there the Greek word telos, uh, or telos. Uh, Repeat after me, telos. Telos means uh, perfect or complete or fulfilled. Uh, The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ is the person who completes or fulfills or perfects our stories, perfects our lives, perfects our faith. Christ is the one who comes to finish or perfect or complete the story of humanity. The one who comes comes to finish or complete the mission that humanity started out on, but sin and brokenness interrupted and impeded. This is the good news that the writer of Hebrews wants us to hear, that somehow, not just our souls, but our very life stories and every single thing in them are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And even the moments of sin and brokenness and failure are turned into opportunities for God's grace and mercy and glory to work itself out in real time, even when we can't see how it's going to end yet. If we're willing to trust him to finish the story. I think that's what makes Hebrews 12 um, so striking when we read it in context of all of the chapters that go before Run the race with endurance, uh, with the endurance. uh, um, um, Look to Jesus as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I think it's easy to read this passage as as an exhortation to put on something. Run the race, the writer says, with endurance, as if you can run a race with anything less than endurance. Writer of Hebrews, definitely not a marathon runner. Uh, But when when you read Hebrews in its entirety, it's easier to keep this snippet in context of what the writer is speaking about, which is faith. It's belief, it's trust, it's hope. Certainly includes our agency and our faithful steps, but but has a lot more to do with God's agency in finishing and perfecting and graciously redeeming our lives. The part that involves our effort, this running of the race, according to the writer of Hebrews, is about shedding, he says, or laying aside every weight or sin that clings so closely. If he were talking to you, that first generation of, of, of former slaves from Egypt, he would have said, laying aside the fear, the fear that keeps you out of the promised land. If he were standing on the threshold of the promised land, he probably would have been saying to Moses, lay aside the anger and the resentment that holds you back. Christ has already done the work, but you and I really struggle to let go of things, the stuff that holds us back. Here's what I mean in a super trite example. Uh, years ago, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was in youth group. 
And as it goes in youth group, or at least when I was in high school, you would gather around and uh, you would hold hands and you would pray to close the night. And uh, my crush was a senior and he happened to, I happened to find myself standing right next to him as we were about to pray. And um, as everybody was gathering hands, he was trying to like open my hand, but um, I had a cold. And so the whole night I had been like rubbing my nose with like tissues and in my hand were these like snotty tissues. Great timing. And, uh, <laughs> and so not only did I have to like, I, I couldn't open my hand, but I had to explain why, like, sorry, I've I just like dirty tissues in my hand. And, uh, and so he proceeded to hold the edge of my wrist like this throughout the prayer. It was great, great. Fell in love after that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, what is the dirty, snotty tissue in your hand? The dirty, snotty tissue in your hand that you're maybe hanging on to, even though literally the thing that's been promised to you, either temporarily or eternally, is placed right in front of you. I don't know what that is. I don't know what the dirty, snotty tissue is for you, but I'm guessing the Holy Spirit does. I'm guessing the people in your life who know you and love you really well also know. What is the weight and the sin that clings so closely, the thing holding us back, the thing that we need to let go of? I think that is the invitation for us this week, to let it aside, to cast it aside, to drop it so that we can cling to the promises of our God in faith and through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so immensely grateful for the redemption that we have discovered in Jesus Christ. We are grateful for um, the making new of our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are grateful for the ways that you not only restore us for communion with yourself and one another, but how you send us to tell the world of the treasure that we've found. And so, Lord, we pray that as we move through this week, that you would open our hearts and open our minds and open our hands and help us to see the things that you want us to let go, but also to see and be renewed in the things that you want us to grab a hold of. And ultimately, that you would help us to run the race with endurance, the race that is our faith in Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Would you please stand and sing with us in response?
blessing for us this morning. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.